If you have your Bible, turn to Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. A story that my guess is will be familiar to many of you, although, just wait and see. This is Luke 10, verses 25 to 37. Folks, listen, this is the word of Christ. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him, Jesus, to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he, the lawyer, answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he, Jesus, said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, the lawyer, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers, who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He, the lawyer, said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of Christ. We're in a series called Financially Blessed to Be a Blessing. And in this series, the goal has been for us to understand how we can honor God with our money. Okay, and we've seen, or I've talked about, there's really four ways that the Bible says you can spend your money that makes God happy, that thrills the heart of God. We've seen three of them already in the previous two weeks. We've seen that God is honored when you celebrate with your money. When you celebrate his abundance and his goodness in your life by buying things that you enjoy, God is honored. Second, God is honored when you use your money to provide for your needs. When you pay your bills. God is honored when you pay your bills. Then we saw third, that God is honored when you tithe 10% of your income to the church. When you spend your money in these three ways, God is honored and he's pleased. Now, the fourth way that you can honor God and experience his blessings with your money is when you use your money to care for others. Okay? To care for others. Now, what's hard about this is that sometimes we feel like, or maybe often we feel like, We barely have enough money to meet our own needs, let alone to care for the needs of others, right? And plus, 
when you think about caring for others, well, okay, how many people do I have to care about? Right? That's actually the crux of the conversation that we see between Jesus and this lawyer. I mean, the question is, does God expect me to spend, to spend until I've met every person's need that I know? It's a good question. This is part of what the lawyer asks when he asks in verse 25. Um, now, just some, some background. Lawyers in the New Testament, they're actually they're the same group of folks as, uh, as, as the folks who are called scribes in the New Testament. Okay, so lawyers and scribes, that's a synonymous term. So if you find either one of those terms in the New Testament, that's what they're, ta- uh, they're talking about, the same group of folks. And so lawyers, they were actually part of the religious leadership of the Jews who were the official interpreters of the Bible. Okay, that was the office that they had. Legal experts, experts in the law, experts in the Bible. And so this particular lawyer is a question, or he asks a question that, frankly, people still ask today. A lot of you are probably wondering, um, what would Jesus say if you asked him, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, he's asking this question not because he wanted to learn, but verse 25 tells us that he was asking this question because he was testing Jesus says the lawyer stood up and put him, or in order to put him to the test. Okay? In Luke 11, just a few chapters later, in verses 53 and 54, we see this fleshed out just a little bit. It says, um, as Jesus went away from there, the scribes, again, same group, and the Pharisees began to press him and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. Okay, so this was a test. And Jesus knew that this was a test. So he reverses the question and puts it back to the lawyer. He does that in verse 26. He says, well, what's written in the law? How do you read it? It's not a bad idea. And the lawyer then responds and he quotes Deuteronomy 6.5 and Leviticus 19.18 in verse 27. He says, uh, and he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength and with all your mind. That's Deuteronomy 6.5. And then Leviticus 19.18 is, and your neighbor as yourself. What's interesting about this is that this is the exact same summary of the whole Old Testament that Jesus himself gives in some other parts of the gospel. Okay? And so Jesus actually, so because of that, Jesus responds in verse 28, and he says, you're right. I agree. Do this, and you will live. What's Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that those who will live forever are those who love God and their neighbor. Okay, that's what he's saying. He's picturing eternal life as a destination. And there's a path that leads to eternal life. And Jesus is saying that you can tell who's going to inherit eternal life, who's going to live forever in perfect happiness and blessing with God, you can tell who's going to inherit that by those who are walking along that path. Okay? That's what Jesus is saying. And it's interesting because when Jesus says, do this and you will live, I don't think he's just talking about life in eternity. Because if you're on this path that leads to eternal life, you will begin now to experience a foretaste of what is to come. 
Okay, part of the glory and the, and the excitement of the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is that you begin to experience the blessings of the future today. You begin to experience a life when you love God with all your heart, when you devote yourself to him, when you love your neighbor as yourself, you will live a life that is charged with God's glory, with God's presence, and his power. And so this path that leads to life, it's not just about pie in the sky by and by, but it's also about how could you live the most satisfying, fulfilling, and joy-filled life today? Today. So, but they both agree, so everything should be good, right? The lawyer gives an interpretation of the law. Jesus says, you're right, do this and live. But the lawyer knows that Jesus has made it a practice of condemning the Jewish leadership. Okay, let me just give you one example. In Luke 11, verse 46, Jesus says there, Woe to you, lawyers, also. It says, Curse be upon you, lawyers. Why? He says, For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Jesus spent quite a bit of time calling out the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. He called them for being hypocrites. This lawyer knew that. Jesus had condemned him, and he didn't like it. And so, verse 29, back in our passage, verse 29, this lawyer wants to justify himself. You see that? The lawyer wanted to justify himself. He wanted to make sure that everybody who heard this conversation knew either that he himself was on this path that Jesus is describing, or if Jesus were to say something that made it sound like he wasn't on the path, then he's hoping Jesus is going to say something that was going to let the religious leaders arrest him and kill him. Okay, for being a false teacher. And so, because he wants to justify himself, he lays this trap for Jesus by asking a simple question. And who's my neighbor? Love your neighbor as yourself? Well, who's my neighbor? If Jesus answers, well, your neighbor are those people who are righteous in the family of God, then the lawyer will feel justified. He'll say, well, that's me, so I'm good. I'm on the path. If Jesus says what he has been saying in lots of other places, even in Luke's gospel, that your neighbor includes tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and people that you have excluded, then the lawyer will know that Jesus doesn't follow his interpretation of the law of the Bible and they can condemn Jesus as a false teacher. Okay, you get the trap? And so what Jesus does is he answers the trap with a story. He answers the trap with a story, and it's not just a story. Jesus tells a story that completely flips the entire situation and ends up trapping the lawyer. It doesn't just trap the lawyer, but this story also will change your relationship with God and with others if you can understand what he's saying. This story will invite you to change the way you think about your life. It will invite you to change the way you think about your money and how you use the money that you have. This story will enable you to bless God in ways that you did not ever dream possible.
okay? Jesus tells the story to draw you in. And so um, we're going to look at three points in this story, but just really quick, uh, let's read verse 30 as an introduction. Jesus replied, A man was going from from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. So this road uh, was incredibly dangerous. It was actually called the Way of Blood. Um, There were caves along this road. The robbers typically would hide out there. It was a really dangerous place to walk. Um, It'd be like walking in certain parts of the East Village at night or in Southeast San Diego. There's places you just don't want to go. Okay? This guy was going there. He's jumped. He's stripped, beaten, and left for dead. Okay? So there he is. He's lying there, and he's waiting to die. Now, as Jesus continues to tell this story, there are going to be three things that will shock his hearers. Okay, so we're going to go through these one by one. If you want to take notes, um, here's the first shock. Shock number one is actually is the problem with religion. Okay, the problem with religion is shock number one. This first shock is verses 31 and 32 with the priest and the Levite. Um, If you're lying half dead in a road, these are actually the people that you want to see coming. You know, as you look up wondering, as you're praying out to God, God help me, I can't move. God, you're going to have to save me. If you were to look up and see a priest and a Levite, you would think that God answered your prayers. Jesus sort of highlights this. He sets it up in verse 31. He says, now, by chance a priest was going down that road. Jesus is saying here, by coincidence, this priest just happened to be coming along. Why? Well, it's because the priests and the Levites, these were the people whose job it was to encourage people's relationship with God. Okay, that's what they did. They led the worship services in the temple. They interceded for the people in God's presence They offered the sacrifices. These were the folks, these were Israel's spiritual leaders. And so here, by happy chance, they come down the same road at exactly the time when this man needs help. But, both of them, as they approached him, they saw him and passed by on the other side. So they're walking down the road and they see him lying there. And they actually move to get out of the way. (laughs) So they can go around him. A priest and a Levite a priest and a Levite, pardon me. A priest and a Levite. These are people who, in the book of Exodus, the high priest, he wore particular garments, and one of the things that he had was a breastplate on. And on this breastplate, it had 12 stones. Each stone represented each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And on the stones was inscribed the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And in Exodus chapter 28, I think it's verse 38, it says that, he, that the high priest is supposed to wear this 
so that they can bear the names of the people of Israel in the presence of the Lord. The priests and the Levite, their job was to represent the people with God. They were supposed to intercede for the people. They were supposed to help the people. They passed by on the other side. This is shocking. This is shocking. I mean, what is up with the religious leaders of Israel? How could they possibly leave this guy dying on the road? I mean, there's all kinds of excuses here that you could go to as to why they didn't stop and help. Maybe they were tired. They were leaving Jerusalem. They had just performed their spiritual service in the temple. Maybe they were busy. You know, I really have to get somewhere. I've got to go do a Bible study with somebody, so I can't stop and help this person out. You know, I know what it was. They were praying, God, I really need you to help me learn how to love people better. And I need to keep praying here. Lord, please just help me to love people better. Maybe they were afraid that the robbers weren't far away. Maybe they were afraid that if they stopped and helped, somebody would get a hold of them. Maybe they were afraid that if they touched someone who was bloody, they would be defiled. Folks, this is... This is the problem with religion. Okay, this is the problem with religion. There are times when religion that is designed to give us a relationship with God actually causes us to avoid Him and what He's called us to do and to be. Because these excuses, they do nothing more than reveal the coldness that is in their hearts their indifference to helping people who are in desperate need. Jesus is telling their story because he's highlighting them, saying these people are not leaders. They shouldn't be followed. If your religion gives you an excuse not to care for people, not to be generous with your life, then Jesus is tapping on your shoulder too. And so this is shocking, but it's not as shocking as what happens next. Um, so the first, shocking, the first shock is the problem with religion with the priest and the Levite. The second shock is the, prom- um, is the promotion of care. The promotion of care with the Samaritan. Verse 33. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, He had compassion. What's shocking about this is that it's a Samaritan. Okay, it's a Samaritan. Samaritans were the arch enemies of the Jews. They were half Jews. They were people who had sold out. They weren't real Jews. Most of the Jews would not even walk through the region of Samaria, but would, I think, I mean, they would walk outside of the promised land to go around Samaria in this crazy long roundabout way that took a long time because they were walking, right? They would walk around so they wouldn't be defiled by the region of Samaria. 
you know, to grasp the impact of this character being a Samaritan. Um, imagine that this setting of this was in Iraq or Afghanistan. Okay? And an American soldier steps on a landmine. Um, and his body is blown to bits and he's lying there half dead. And then picture, walking down the road, a U.S. chaplain and a medic. And they climb around and pass by on the other side. But a member of the Taliban comes and sees him and comes to the place and had compassion on him. That's the shock of the Samaritan. And the key here is that word, that last word in verse 33. It's compassion. Compassion. This was the difference because all three came, all three saw, but only one had compassion. To have compassion means to have pity, means to feel sympathy for someone else. What does it do? Verse 34, he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Two denarii, that's two days' wages. So today that'd be about 250 bucks. He gave him to the innkeeper and said, take care of him, and if you spend anything more than this, I'll pay you when I get back. Compassion moved the Samaritan to care. The need before him touched his heart, and so he opened his heart and he cared for this person. He cared with his heart, right, because he was moved with compassion. He cared with his time and his schedule. See that? Because he stopped. He bound him up. He cared with his hands. Bound up his wounds. He poured on oil to soothe the wound, wine to kill the germs. He cared with his time and his schedule. He took him to an inn and he took care of him. And then he cared for him with his money. What he did was wonderful. What he did was amazing. But who he was in the story is shocking. Because again, this is a member of the Taliban. And that's part of why Jesus told this story. And it's why he concluded in verse 36, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who was among the robbers? And the lawyer's struggling. Because the last thing on earth the lawyer's going to say is, well, the Samaritan. And so he can't even bring himself to say the word. And so he says, well, verse 37, the one who showed him mercy, right? Not the Samaritan, but the one who showed him mercy. And this leads us to to the third and the final shock. The third shock is the word of Jesus. The word of Jesus. Because Jesus drives the point home. At the end of verse 37, he says, You go and do likewise. 
it's kind of interesting that when people come with questions to test Jesus, that Jesus will often flip it around and all of a sudden the test is on you. This happens with skeptics, even today. People that have questions that want to point out the inconsistencies of Jesus or why you can't trust Jesus. And if they really engage with the person of Jesus and actually look at the evidence that's there, the table begins to flip and they find themselves realizing, wait a second, there are questions here that I need to answer. But you've got to see how Jesus flips this. Because if you, if, yeah, this is what leads to the joy and the glory uh, of the gospel. Um, because Jesus was asked, who is my neighbor? But Jesus' answer is, who proved to be a neighbor? Okay, so the neighbor is not, who do I have to treat this way? Who do I have to love? But the neighbor is, will I treat others this way? According to the lawyer, you've got three people lying dead on the road. And his question is, who do I have to love? But Jesus flips it and says, there are three people walking down the road, one of whom helps. Who is the neighbor? Do you get that? So it's not who is my neighbor, but it's will you be a neighbor? That's what Jesus is getting at. Will you be a neighbor? And what we see from this story, in terms of its application, is that a neighbor is is anyone, anyone who cares for the needs around him or her. You are a neighbor if you see a need around you and you move to meet it. And Jesus wants to know, will you prove to be a neighbor? Will your life demonstrate that you are a neighbor? Now Jesus isn't saying here that if you do good to others, you can earn your salvation. Okay, that's not what he's saying, because remember... The first half of the summary of the law is that you need to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and all your strength. Okay, and the second piece of that is you need to love your neighbor as yourself. So it starts with a relationship with God. Okay, loving your neighbors without loving God does not put you on the path that leads to eternal life. Okay, and you need to realize too, and here's the really good news where we see the gospel, is that before Jesus asks you to walk on this path, he tells you and he shows you that he himself has walked on this path himself. Okay, if you're here today and you're a Christian, then you're on this path. And you're on this path because Jesus has put you on this path. Jesus is the perfect embodiment of the Good Samaritan. And when you see this story in connection with the rest of the story of Jesus, you can see the gospel in really glorious ways. Because if you look at the rest of the story of Jesus, and this parable is a foil for that, then we're the ones lying on the road 
dead in our sins, struggling with the problems and the difficulties of our lives. Jesus is the one who came from heaven, not by chance, but Jesus came because God so loved the world that he gave his only son. And when Jesus comes to your life, he sees you exactly as you are, and he is moved with compassion. He understands exactly what you're going through. He knows every challenge, and he has come to minister and to meet your needs. Jesus binds up your wounds by taking your punishment on the cross. And the wine of his blood is poured out to cleanse you from your sins. He does this because he loves you. He does this because he wants you not just to hear about his love, but he wants to show you how much he loves you. Jesus picks you up and puts you not on his animal, but on his back on the back of his perfect life, on the back of his resurrection, and he raises you up so that you can have a new start. So you can have a new life. And Jesus carries us not to an end, but to the church. And there he cares for you. He introduces you to his family, and with his family, his brothers and his sisters, and we care for each other. We spend time with each other. And Jesus promises that he's going to come back. This is the love of Jesus for you. This is what he has done for you. No matter what road you're on, no matter where you are on that road, this is Jesus coming. He came to meet you if you're a Christian. If you're not, he is here to meet you for the first time. And he offers to pick you up and carry you with him. Will you let him? Will you let him? Will you repent of your sins? Confess your sins to Jesus and say, Lord, forgive me. I need your cross and your resurrection. When you experience this love of Jesus... That's where your love for others comes. Right? We are pitchers. And unless Jesus pours his love into us, we have nothing to share. But when his love pours into us to the point where we overflow, that is the love that we share with others. That's the love that compels us to love others with that same love. It's this love that, that, that compels people to give sacrificially of their time of their schedule, right? To get their hands dirty, their talents, and their money to meet the needs of others. And so, Jesus has been a neighbor to you. And he asks you, will you be a neighbor to others? Will you, this week, be a neighbor to others? And I want to point something out that um, 
what, G, uh, what, what the Samaritan encounters on the road is a particularly pointed situation where someone is in an emergency. Okay? So this is someone who is in an emergency. They are about to die. Okay? This is different from encountering someone who has a very deep-seated and chronic systemic problem that they're dealing with. Do you understand what I'm saying? Now, I'm not saying that we also shouldn't engage in those systemic issues. We have friends, family members, we have members of our church where we know that the process of care and friendship is going to take longer periods of time. But what Jesus is saying here is not necessarily that you have to stop everything that you're doing, and completely invest every waking hour of your day into the problems of people that will take far more time than you have and far more expertise than you have. Okay? I just want to be clear. That's what Jesus... This is the illustration that Jesus is using, okay? This is someone who's been attacked and is lying dead on the road, or almost dead. Okay? And so, for us... When you think about how to be a neighbor this week, you want to ask yourself, what are the needs around me that I can meet with the time that I have? Think about your, at home. How can you be a neighbor at home? What are the needs that you can meet? How can I be a neighbor at work? Right? Who are the people that are struggling? The chances are that you're not going to encounter someone lying half dead in the road this week. And so we've got an extreme example here, but what lesser examples will you encounter this week at the office, in your work, with people in your neighborhood, with the people in your community group that you can be a neighbor to? In what ways can you open your heart, open your hands, open your time and schedule, open your wallet to help others? This is what Jesus invites us to. And there's places in the Bible that actually show us what it looks like when the church follows suit. Let me just read 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It says this. It says, The grace of God has been given among the churches of Macedonia, for in their severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy... And their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. That's the heart of generosity that is produced when you are loved and you are neighbored by Jesus. Acts 4, there was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is a life of generosity. It's a life of caring for others. It's making decisions, and it's, it's so much more than just money. Right? It's your time. It's your talents and your treasure. Right? And the question is, what, in what ways can you be a neighbor this week? 
And I just, I want to leave you with this, because here is what to me is mind-blowing. If you need another encouragement to make sure that you are living in the spirit of care and generosity, um, how about this for motivation? There's coming a day, there's coming a day when Jesus is going to return to this earth. Okay, And on that day, he is going to take the masses of humanity, every person that's alive then, and he's going to raise up from the dead everybody who's ever lived. And he's going to separate them into two groups of people. And he's going to look to one group, one of those two groups, and he's going to say, come. Come, you are blessed by my Father. Come, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. And these people are going to be lost in wonder. They're going to say to him, Lord, when? When did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And on that day, Jesus will answer them and say, Truly I say to you, as often as you did it, to one of the least of my brothers. You did it to me. When you neighbor someone else this week, you are neighboring Jesus himself. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are encouraged by your love for us. And Lord, we are convicted because we don't show forth this heart to others. Lord, please help us to see and experience your love for us so that we would feel the fullness of your approval of us, not because of what we've done, because we haven't done enough, but Lord, because of your perfect life, because of your death on the cross and your forgiveness, Lord, that's why you approve of us. And so Lord, cleanse us with the assurance of forgiveness and restore to us that sense of your love so that we can share that love with others this week. This week, Lord, the amazing reality that we might be able this week to do something for you. Amen.